Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see you. I've been away for two weeks in the United States, uh, first part of that on a study conference, uh, getting my brain expanded, and the second part visiting a church in Phoenix, Arizona, where, uh, with, which, with whom we have a partnership, and uh, they send their love and greetings to us, and it's funny to think that just seven days ago we were in the sunshine going to a church there in a car park that was full of pickup trucks, and here we are today. Um, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I'm also glad that Graham and I are wearing the same outfit today. Graham, I love it when we coordinate, friend. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? What would you ask him? A survey was carried out a few years ago in the city of Manchester. Uh, people responded to the question and the results were collated. And here are the top three questions that were asked. Number one, why all the pain? The question of suffering. Number two, how can I know the truth about God? And number three, what about other religions? Now, those are all great questions, and I'm not going to answer any of them today. But I'd love to know what you would ask. In this passage that uh, the ladies just read, we discover what actually happened when a woman met God. It was a normal day. She went through a normal routine. She went to fetch water from a well. She probably went to the same place every day. Only this time, this one time it was different. She literally bumped into God because she met Jesus. It would be like going to the office, if you still go to such a place, going into the grab a coffee or a drink at the water cooler, and there, standing next to the fridge, is God. Oh, excuse me. Oh, uh, hello. <clears throat> Haven't seen you here before. Pause. What would you say? What would you do next? Now, what actually happens here in our passage, if you want to turn back to page 1066, uh, it's there in the church Bible. I'll read it for you in verse 7. Uh, it's actually Jesus is the one who breaks the silence, and he says, will you give me a drink? Now, to be fair, this woman doesn't know who she's dealing with at this point. She doesn't know his name. She can figure out a couple of things. She can obviously tell he's a man. She also can tell very quickly that he is Jewish. But other than that, she doesn't know. And she's quite suspicious, and rightly so. This is a very unusual conversation. But as it goes on, she comes to realize this is no ordinary person. This is somebody absolutely unique and extraordinary. Notice the progression. By verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Somebody who is very discerning and spiritually gifted and could speak from God. I can see that you're a prophet. But then by verse 25, she's saying, Come, uh, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He knows what your favorite film is. He knows where you went on holiday. He knows everything about you. And then by verse 42, the end of the story, she and her neighbours have reached a, a, a massive conclusion, which is this. This man really is the saviour of the world, the rescuer of the whole world. Now, that's quite a journey, isn't it, in one day? She started out that thinking Jesus maybe was a bit strange, but curious. He ends up believing that he's the rescuer of the entire world. But that is what happens to people. 
We're doing a series called Come and See at the moment. In this book called, uh, written by a guy called John, every time we look into it, we find people come and see Jesus. They meet him. And this is what happens to them. And it happened over and over again. And it's been happening ever since. It's happening today. All around the world, people are meeting Jesus in the Bible and their lives are being changed forever. It has already been happening in the East, in Asian countries to the east of us. And it will be happening in the West later today. People will be reaching the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior of the world and the Lord of the world, the King. And that is the wonderful journey of faith. And I want to ask you just to come a few steps on that journey with me today. I wonder where you are on that journey, who you think Jesus is right now. Is he a bit strange but curious? Maybe you think he was a good teacher, perhaps some kind of prophet, spiritual person. But do you think he's your savior, your Lord? Back to our opening question for a moment. If you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? The first thing we notice in this story is really interesting. It's this. When people met Jesus, he's the one who asks the questions. He asks questions of us. See, Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation with the woman. Would you get me a drink? And then he guides the conversation. And at one point, he appears to change the subject abruptly in quite an awkward way. We'll come on to that. But we notice that he's not a bully or he's not controlling. He's gentle but firm. He's asking the questions. He can be unsettling. He's often direct. He looks her right in the eye and asks her about the one thing she really doesn't want to talk about, the one thing that she wants to hide. It's a bit like the description of the lion, Aslan, in the Narnia stories, if you remember those stories. Aslan is a great lion, but we find out in the books that he's really a picture of Jesus Christ. And somebody asks, is he safe? And the reply is, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in our story today, we find this king, Jesus, this good but not safe person, asks three questions, and I want to share them with you. The first question, well, these three questions, I believe, could change your life together forever if you will face them. They could change your life. The first question is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? It'll be coming up on the screen in a moment. Our story begins with Jesus traveling from down south to up north to his home region. He's traveling from Judea to Galilee, which is in the north of the country that we call Israel. But en route, it says he had to go through Samaria, verse 4. And the funny thing about this is the scholars have looked at the maps, you know, and they, they say he didn't really have to go through there. But the reason he's chosen to go through there is to meet this woman. Samaria was an interesting place. It had a long and troubled history. Hundreds of years before, this northern part of the country had broken away from the south. It was rebellious. It had developed its own religion. Then it was conquered by a great empire from the east called Assyria. And most of the people at that point were actually deported and taken away, never to return. And the ones who were left behind then intermarried with other nations, other foreigners, and they mixed in their religious ideas. So they had a, a religion that we would call syncretistic. It's a, it's a kind of a, a blended uh, mix of ideas. So to the Jewish people, the Samaritans are a decidedly dodgy bunch of people. They are not proper Jews. 
and they had lots of strange ideas about God. They didn't accept the whole Old Testament, etc. Now, when we hear the word Samaritan, I wonder what comes to mind. Probably quite good vibes. You know, if you decide somebody wants to call the Samaritans, that could be a lifeline for them. The Samaritans, we have this um, charity. You, if you have se- severe mental health or, or uh, depression, you can call the Samaritans and they have trained people who will talk to you. And then in the Bible, that Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. There's a charity called the Samaritan's Purse. But when a first century Jew heard the word Samaritan, they are not thinking good vibes. They are thinking, ooh, dodgy. No first century Jew would phone the Samaritans if he was depressed. And the feelings were mutual. If you look at verse 9, the woman says, you are, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And in our church Bible there, it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And there's a little footnote that says this, or do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. Oh, that's something, isn't it? The word there means, can mean, they used nothing in common with the Samaritans. Here, just hand me that spoon. I want to finish my uh, breakfast. A Samaritan used that spoon. What? Keep that spoon away from me. They want nothing to do with them. What do we do? So Jesus has walked right into Samaria and sat down by a well. He's done it deliberately and he's deliberately reached across some of the biggest barriers of his time. Ethnic barriers, the Jew-Samaritan thing. Gender barriers, men, especially respectable men, did not talk to women on their own. Moral barriers. Now, why do I say moral? You know, there's a reason why it says here the woman has come to draw water at noon. And noon is the hottest part of the day. And this is a very, very hot country. There's an old poem that says, mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. And if you go on holiday to Spain, you'll find the truth of that poem. The Spanish will go to the beach early in the morning. By the early afternoon, the Spanish are going off to have their lunch and a siesta. But that's when we show up. The Brits, sleeves rolled up, already burning red. Knotted hanky, sitting there, beer, burning, roasting. No one else goes out at noon except us and this Samaritan woman. Now, why is that? Not because she's English, but because she's shamed. We find out later on that this woman has had five husbands and she's currently living with a guy, not married. This is uh, morally someone who's really uh, on the outskirts, a marginal person morally in that culture. And so she goes to draw the water, not with the other women, because they give her a hard time. She goes on her own at noon when no one else is there. And that's why Jesus has gone there to meet her. She's a picture of a total outsider. And notice how Jesus reaches out, will you give me a drink? That's very edgy. Jesus just crossed the line. He has breached social convention. Now, in the 1960s, in the civil rights movement, a great movement in the United States, African-American students decided they would deliberately go into a cafe and sit in the white part of the cafe to cross the, the line of social convention, to challenge it. And people thought, oh, you can't do that. They could. 
And this is what's happening here. A Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for a drink on their own. No way. We'd never do it. No wonder she says, she actually replies, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? That's crazy. You often find this with Jesus. He, He goes to people where they are and he pursues them. He's not bothered about convention. He cares about the person, not the protocol. He cares about this woman. He's going to go after her heart. And that's why he moves the conversation on. Look what he says in verse 10. If you knew who I am, you would have asked me for a drink. And I would have given you living water. Now this is quite a strange thing to say, isn't it? Who is this guy with this living water? Is this some kind of a sales trick? You know, he asked for a drink. Really, he was trying to sell me a soft drink called living water. Now, Jesus is actually doing something much deeper. He's making an offer here. He's giving her an invitation to find out who he really is. He's saying something that's going to intrigue her and draw her in. But she's quite skeptical and suspicious, so she says in verse 11 to 12, well, <clears throat> you, know, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket. The well's very deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Now, Jacob was the great founding father of the nation. He dug this well hundreds of years before. This is a famous place from their history. She's saying, are you really trying to tell me that you're greater than our father, Jacob? And then Jesus makes this astonishing claim. He reveals he's talking about something much, much deeper than a cup of water. Read with me again in verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them, it will become, sorry, will never thirst Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, he's talking about satisfaction. In a very hot, dry country, you could really experience thirst with no running water in the the kitchen. Had to go to the well every day. You could really experience thirst. And to be truly thirsty is to be in agony. I would think most of us have never experienced that. I don't think I've gone a 24-hour period in my life without water, clean water to drink. But if you were really thirsty and then you had some water, you would know that it was the most satisfying, refreshing experience possible. Jesus there is using this image to talk about something very deep about us. He's saying, I've got something for you that is absolutely basic and necessary. You need it. You can't get it anywhere else. And it is as important to you spiritually as water is to you, to you physically. You can't live without it. I think you can live three days without water, then you're done. If you don't have what Jesus has got, you are absolutely lost. And he says, this water that I'm going to give you, I can give you will satisfy you from the inside. Notice what he said. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. It, it will become in them a spring of water welling up 
to eternal life, life that goes on forever. He's talking about a deep change inside a person, something that happens uh, to them on the inside, some kind of change inside you that creates life and satisfaction where before there was only craving and discontentment. Now, would you like that? Do you want that? Are you thirsty? Most people are actually completely oblivious to how thirsty they really are because they're so caught up in their lives chasing the things that they believe will satisfy them. The quest to satisfy our thirst is so all-consuming that it numbs us to our symptoms. We can live our entire lives without admitting to ourselves that we are terribly thirsty deep down. We're terribly thirsty on the spiritual level. The writer and pastor Timothy Keller has a wonderful book, talks about this passage called Encountering Jesus. He says that the few people in life who actually do reach or exceed their dreams are shocked to discover that these circumstances do not satisfy them. The few people in life who really get there, they're always shocked. They always are shocked to find out that those circumstances do not satisfy. In fact, they only enhance the feeling of inner emptiness by their presence. Give you two examples. Boris Becker. Don't know if you remember Boris Becker. Many of you, the older ones, will. Boris Becker, he looked exactly like Scott McLean. If you want to know what he looked like, meet Scott afterwards. In his day, Boris Becker was the greatest tennis player in the world. He was astonishing. And he, he got there very young. In fact, he was a teenager. became a world champion. Boris Becker said this, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player ever. I was rich. I had all the material possessions that I needed or wanted. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. Now, we might think, it's all right for you to say that, Boris. Give me half a chance. <laughs> right? if, if I had that much success and money, I think I'd make a better fist of it. But, you know, Becker is telling us the truth because he knows it. Even if we did have those things, they wouldn't satisfy our thirst any more than they did his. They would not satisfy our thirst in the slightest because you might have all of that, but it's still you. Another incredibly successful person, one of the most beautiful, successful women of the 20th century, Sophia Loren, actress, said she had everything, but listen to this quote, in my life there is an emptiness that is impossible to fulfill. Are you thirsty? And what these stories are telling us and what Jesus is suggesting is that we are all thirsty. We have this deep inner yearning for something more. We're all thirsty, but you might not have realized it. And I hope maybe you've realized it now. If God is speaking to you here, you've been unconscious until now, but now you realize I am thirsty for something more. Let me ask you, be honest, are you completely satisfied? At peace with your life and your lot? Or are you thirsty? What Jesus is saying to this woman is absolutely stunning. Everybody's got to live for something, but Jesus is saying, if he is not that thing, then whatever else it is will fail you. 
That was his first question. But the conversation doesn't end there because Jesus decides to talk about the elephant in the room, or maybe we should say the elephant at the well. There's a big issue here that hasn't been mentioned. It's the one thing the woman doesn't want to talk about. It's her past. Look at verses 16 and 17. He told her, he suddenly says, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, is this really a polite thing to say to a lady? Jesus is not just a man, though. He's God in the flesh. He knows things that you and I could never know. He can see right through people. God's spirit reveals to him things about people that are in them that they don't even know themselves. And he can see that this woman has been trying to quench her thirst through a relationship. It's a familiar solution. I think I would suspect many of us in this room have searched to quench our thirst with the perfect relationship. And maybe some of us are still trying to do that. This woman has been trying to fix life, trying to fill the emptiness with a man. How do we know that? Five husbands and now living with another guy, which was pretty edgy in those days. Now, of course, it's possible that one or two of the husbands died of natural causes, but not all five. We don't know any of the details. Jesus doesn't probe. We don't need to know. But he puts his finger on this aspect of her life. He's not changing the subject here. He is very much on point. This is the area of thirst that he wants to talk about. It's about relationship. Now, Jesus taught that marriage was designed for one man, one woman for life. Jesus had a very, very high view of sex. Sex is a wonderful gift to be enjoyed fully, but only within that kind of marriage. So, frankly, what he's doing here is highlighting a moral failure. A moral failure. And that leads us to our second question, which is much quicker. Are you guilty? See, we're all thirsty. But here's the second question I need to ask is, are you guilty? Because according to the Bible, we all find, try and find ways to quench our thirst, which are illegitimate. Uh, we use strategies, and the Bible calls these ways sin. And this is one thing we often don't realize. Just try and see this with me for a moment. Our sins usually come out of our attempt to quench our thirst. If you can grab hold of that, that, that could change you. Your favorite sins are actually coming out of your attempt to quench your thirst inside. The Bible, in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, puts it like this, Jeremiah 2. Be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with great horror, says the Lord. My people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Two sins. First of all, we forsake God. He's the one who's the source of life and water, satisfaction. We forsake him, and then we dig our own well, but it's broken, there's no water coming in, it's empty, it's dry, it's unsatisfying. And here we are, digging and digging and digging in this cistern that cannot hold water. It's an image of incredible frustration and futility. That's what we're like. 
What could it look like for you? One person finds that life is just a burden, so heavy to bear, so she or he finds relief in a bottle. Night after night, drinking to numb the pain until they can't remember the last time they went asleep without blacking out. That is digging your own cistern. And it's a dead end, isn't it? We all know that. Another person tries to quench their thirst with approval. If I can only get everyone to like me, then I will be satisfied. And you know, there are times when it almost works. When everybody likes you and approves of you and thinks you're great, you feel on top of the world, but it doesn't last for long. And the effort that it takes to keep everyone happy is relentless. So you actually end up burning out because of it and fairly angry at the people who let you down. Someone else thinks they can quench their thirst with the perfect relationship. And the first rush of a new romance and the hormones, it all seems so lovely and right for a while, but it can't last. And when the real work of learning to love someone begins, you find out, you find fault with them, you push them out of your life and hope for someone else next time. Another person thinks that perfect sexual satisfaction is the way to quench their thirst. So this person tries to find it on the internet. And at first, that click of a button is intoxicating and delirious. It rushes through your entire body. But pornography will not satisfy. It is a broken system and it leads to a spiral of perversion as ever more sick material is needed and self-loathing afterwards. Pornography sets something in, on fire in you. A whole, an unholy, strange fire. If every website you visited was projected onto that screen now, would you stay for the rest of the service? But you know, there are other ways too that people do this. Religious people uh, try and find satisfaction, dig their own systems by being really good. They get very involved in serving at church. They pour their time and energy into it. They, 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 they try and keep their conduct proper. They never swear. They never tell rude jokes. But you notice that when the heart behind it is wrong, when they get so angry and judgmental and defensive, the things they're doing are good, but they're actually trying to save themselves by being good. It's an illegitimate strategy. And we have thousands of ways of doing this. See, in the Bible, sin is not just about doing naughty things, eating chocolate, staying up late. Sin is looking to anything else except Jesus Christ for your rescue. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God, saying, I'm going to be my own saviour and Lord. And whatever you're trying to quench your thirst with, if it's not Jesus, that's your, that's your sin. And under that definition, friends, we all of us stand condemned no matter what you've done. That's why last week, chapter three of this book looked at one of the ultimate good religious insiders, Nicodemus, and this week, chapter four, looks at one of the ultimate outsiders, the woman at Samaria, and they're both basically brought on the same level. We're all thirsty and we're all guilty because our thirst leads us to guilty pleasures 
but they don't satisfy. And Jesus knows this, and so does this woman. And so that leads us to the final question, which is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? If you've, if you've realized you're thirsty, if you can tell that you're guilty, are you now ready for Jesus? You're ready to change. See, Jesus doesn't engage this woman in a conversation to show off how clever he is, and he doesn't want to embarrass her. He engages her in conversation because he wants to make her the ultimate offer. Here it is again, verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Where do we get this living water? We get it by finding Jesus. See, at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't want to give you a religious experience or some personal benefits. He wants to give you himself. A relationship with him. That is life-changing. That's what's going on in verses 25 to 26. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. He's here. The one who will explain everything to us, the king who will put the world to rights, the lover, the rescuer who will change us forever. He's here. He changes their world forever. And, th- and this is what happens for anybody who meets Jesus Christ and becomes a follower of him. And then later in this story, you notice the other Samaritans, a woman goes back to the town and she's telling everyone. She doesn't care. She's not embarrassed now. She's telling everyone about this man she just met and telling them about the story. And they find out too. And they say, in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Are you ready for that? For you to say he's my saviour too. The saviour of the world. And so that's the final question, and I want us to take us there just before we come to this Lord's table. Are you ready to meet Jesus now? If you have a Christian friend or family member or spouse, you probably notice that there's something different about them. You can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something about the different about them on the inside. They're not perfect, and they wouldn't say so. But they have something changing on the inside. They have an inner peace, an inner joy, an inner life that's growing. And it's very intriguing to you. They are not perfect, but let me say, tell you what that you are starting to notice. It is that they have met Jesus, and the water that he gives them is becoming them a spring of water welling up to life. Change inside, spiritual. Last week, Jesus talked about it as being born again, new birth. This week, he talks about it as being a spring of water, deep satisfaction. It's the same thing. 
Are you thirsty today? Are you guilty? Are you ready? So, how did this woman come to find salvation? The answer is, she found it because Jesus was thirsty. That's why he went to the well, wasn't it? He went because he was thirsty. If he hadn't been thirsty, he'd never have gone there. And she would never have met him and found the living water. But why was Jesus thirsty? Back at the beginning of this book, the book of John, it describes Jesus in the most exalted terms possible. It's a picture of Jesus as the divine, eternal son of God, the one who has always existed. He's the one who made all, through him everything was made. There's nothing in the heavens and earth, the stars, the cosmos, and there's nothing that wasn't made through Jesus. He's the creator of everything, of the universe. And that, guess what that means? He made all the water. So the one who made all the water has no reason to be thirsty, does he? Unless he chose to. You see, when we come and see Jesus, we meet one who has emptied himself of all his greatness and majesty and has come down to our level, to our world, as a vulnerable person. He even became subject to being hot, exhausted, and thirsty. The woman found the living water because Jesus Christ said, I thirst. And that's not the last time that Jesus said he was thirsty in the book of John. He says it again near the end. When Jesus was hanging on a cross, naked, battered, and dying, he cried out in agony, I am thirsty. And Jesus meant more than just physical thirst at that point because there he was experiencing the punishment that every human being deserves for their sins. He was cut off from the Father, the source of living water and life. Now Jesus never stopped being God and the Father never stopped loving Jesus. But at that point, Jesus experienced the ultimate agonizing eternal thirst of which the worst death is just a hint. And it's because Jesus experienced that on his cross that you and I can have our spiritual thirst satisfied forever. He died so that we can live. He was thirsty so that we can be satisfied. And he did it gladly. Seeing what he did and why he did it is going to turn our hearts away, isn't it? From all the foolish things that we look to. And let's remember that as we come to the Lord's table. I'm going to ask our pastors who are serving the table to come and join me. And musicians, we're going to sing one song as we prepare our hearts for this part of our worship. Thank you, Sam.